Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know, and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we're happy to welcome you to a very special episode where we deep dive with Al Ramadan one of the authors of the seminal book, Play Bigger, which first introduced category design to the world, which has since sold more than 100,000 copies and been heralded by people like Mark Benioff of Salesforce and Jim Goetz of Sequoia. If you haven't yet read this work, we highly recommend that you do. In this episode, we deep dive on the concept of character design, how it has developed since its inception in 2016 and how it's being applied by forward-thinking VCs. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs are in Europe and maybe even invest with them? Pre-register for our newsletter on theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Al, welcome to the show. I have to say I have been very excited to bring you to the European VC and get your thinking over here from the United States to our beautiful continent. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure to be here and look forward to the conversation. Thank you. I'm stoked about this. But before we start, I just want us to frame things a bit more for those in our audience who aren't absolutely familiar with you and Playbreaker and the momentous work you've done in defining the category of category creation. So please do tell us the story and the insights that led to creating Playbreaker and the category of category creation. (laughs) Well, it started in my operating career in the 90s, at least. There were just some companies that I was working for that seemed to sort of hit it out of the park and they had some sort of unique combination of sort of product and go-to-market and category that couldn't quite figure out, but it drove incredible growth. And you know, one of the companies was Macromedia and another one was Mercury Interactive. And so these companies kind of just got us thinking that maybe there was something about the way they did things or the way they were doing things that worked. And so Christopher Lockhead and I established Play Bigger in 2010, sort of our attempt to go create some categories for other companies. And <laughs> it worked. <laughs> By about 2015, we had worked with about 20 different pre-IPO tech companies. And we also decided to write a book. And the book is called Play Bigger, and our category is actually called Category Design. So roll the clock forward to today, and you know we've completed over 50 different category designs, credible companies like Qualtrics, Salonis, Airtable, many other companies. And our book's become a bestseller, and Christopher has created you know one of the best podcasts on category design called Category Pirates. And for anyone listening, do follow it. It's great. <laughs> yeah, no, it's sure. phenomenal. And he's an incredible category designer. And now I think we're in a point where sort of dozens and dozens of successful transformations have happened. We've got global interest in more than... $200 billion of market cap has been created by category design. And it was sort of evolved from that innovative sort of early days of play bigger to where it is today. And it's just been an exciting time to be part of this thing. For sure. I can only imagine, you know, I've been an avid follower of your work here in little Denmark. And I think that one of the things that you actually originated in the Play Bigger book and as part of your research was this IPO sweet spot that every VC knows of and every VC lives by. <laughs> I think you call it the 16 law and that's also what I've heard Mike Maples Jr. refer to it as. And I'd love to unpack that insight and then hear a bit more about what led you to do that and where you are with category design as a category and how life cycles really develop. It was in pursuit of trying to understand how categories form and what is the 
timeline for a category. I think that's where the whole research started. We were students of history, wanted to understand actually how these categories form and what drives the formation of categories. And so that was the starting point. And we took a few different tacks to try and answer that problem. One of them was sort of the quantitative attack, which was to look at every company that was founded since 2000 and just understand sort of the trajectory of all of these companies. And we first published a report called the Time to Market Cap Report. I don't know if you remember this one, but it's available on playbigger.com under the research tab. And it was this astounding reveal that as we went through time from 2000 through, I think it was through to 2014 or 15 at that point in time, each four or five years, the time to market cap, so the speed to which companies created value or created market cap for themselves increased over that time and it progressively increased. And so that was sort of the first finding. The second finding was that if you categorize all of those companies, literally 10,000 companies plus, and you take the ones that became category kings, as we call them in the book, you realize that 76% of the market cap went to the winner. Yeah. I remember Mark Andreessen talking about this in one of his you know, doctrines back in 2013 or something like that. And he said, it's a winner-take-all game. He didn't have the same amount of data as we did, but was the same concept. And that's true. It is absolutely true. 76% of the market cap goes to the leader. And then as we were doing that, we wanted to understand how did the value of a company progress after they go public? It's one thing to get to public. But, you know, VCs and actually any investor for that matter, including all of the employees, want to know that there's going to be value created beyond that. So we started looking at sort of like post-IPO, who created the most value and then where was the window for that? And that's where the actual 610 law came from, that companies that went public between their sixth and tenth year of being generally created the most value. Category design is, as we talked about, a category in itself. So I'm curious to hear where is category design on this axis? Well, the category of category design, I would say that we're at the five or six year mark right now. If you have read the book or you understand our category life cycle, which is generally a 10 to 15 year timeline, we are just transitioning from what we call the define phase to the develop phase. And there's three phases, define, which is an early stage where a lot of companies are talking about the, that particular problem. Then there's the develop phase where two or three companies sort of stand out as the leaders and become the evangelists for that problem and ultimately go on to be the category king. And then there's the, what we call the final phase, and it is where one company takes, you know, three quarters of the market cap and then there's a bunch of other smaller companies fighting over the scraps. And so we are just in the transition from the define to the develop. I'm curious to hear how it has evolved as a category, what kind of players have jumped in on the table. Of course, some of them are competitors to you, but some of them are, of course, just part of the ecosystem and using the framework and the thinking. It's much bigger than it was in 2016. That is absolutely for sure. If you do a search for category design on LinkedIn, you'll find thousands and thousands of either people or companies doing category design. So it is one of those things that has become sort of a management discipline. It's one of those design thinking disciplines, I think. You've got individuals within an enterprise who are, the, if you like, the category designer for her enterprise, and she's responsible for running the category design play. You've got external agencies like Playbigger, but there are many others, and they're all good, who are also running these category design methods, as we call them. Like I said, we're in that crossover phase between define and develop where the discipline itself, I think, is getting better understood. We've published a lot and so have others published a lot around this. 
And it feels a little bit like product design back in the 90s. I don't know if you remember that or experience design in and around 2000 when those design disciplines kind of got going inside of enterprises. People realized they drive growth. People realized they create value. And now everyone's trying to understand, okay, how do I apply this to my company or my portfolio? I really enjoyed churning tin. <laughs> so that's what that's what I did back in 2000. Sometimes theories take on their own life once you have originated it as the first team developing it. I'm curious to hear if there's any uh, misconceptions around category design in the market that you would love if, if people would maybe <laughs> try and get out of their heads. It is definitely a transformative activity inside a company. And it does take some time in the case of some of our big customers who we've worked with, it can take three, four, five months, something like that. And so I think for the first four or five years as we were developing, if you like, the process or the method, as we now call it, there was a perception that it was only for, you know, sort of companies that had raised a billion dollars or a lot of money (laughs) and had tons of money to spend and all that sort of stuff. I think that was sort of the perception back in the day. Soon after the book came out, I think what happened was people realized, oh, no, no, we can either do this themselves and we have literally hundreds, maybe thousands of companies that are now designing their own category. Nothing to do with anybody else. It's all done by internals. So that really smashed, I think, the preconception that it was only for a specialist group and all that sort of thing. And today what's happened, at least with Play Bigger, is we've realized that there are different companies at different phases. You can't deliver, if you like, a one-size-fits-all methodology or method. And so we've created three. And in 2021, this year, I think it was in March of this year, we released a first real update to our methods and we launched two new ones. So we have the Immerse method, which is sort of the gold standard. It's the thing that you use for a company like a Qualtrics or one of these companies that, you know, sort of 12, 18, 24 months from IPO and really want to drive some outstanding growth. We then have a method called Activate, which is for companies that are in generally the Series B to Series C, or it could be a department of a bigger company. We also see that showing up sometimes. That method's been really good, and it's us being essentially the coach and counsel to an inside category designer, somebody who's inside the company and trying to drive this transformation inside the organization. But they're the ones actually doing the work. We're the ones helping them out with reviews and counsel, and we provide a whole bunch of assets as well. For companies sort of in the series, pre-series A and series A, and this is something that Mike Maples used to and Anne Mirako used to sort of yell at us about, they were like, yeah, it's great for all of the companies upstream, but what about creating a sort of, a, I think they called it a process back then, but a method for earlier stage companies. And so we really took that to heart. Got to give a lot of credit to Mary Foreman from Play Bigger, who really developed this product market fit for companies in the pre-A and A stage. We have a method we call therapy, which is really innovative, very agile, and it works for companies in that phase. And it allows them to do a bunch of the work, get it mostly right, and then move on, as opposed to these other ones where you're actually having to do a longer sort of lead. So I think that's the evolution that we've seen. And other companies and other, you know, sort of authors have been talking about this same idea is that there's definitely different types of category design depending on the phase of the company. I can only say to all the listeners, go in and check out your work because it is incredibly important for anyone working in VC and building companies that should change the history of time. Before we start talking about how VCs use category design, I want to hear from you, just ponder a bit over the process of writing Play Bigger and ask you, looking back, is there anything you would have wished you had changed in the book when it first came out? 
<laughs> that's, that's a great question. I had never written a book before, honestly, and writing it with three others was just a remarkable process. And Kevin Maney, who was the real author, or the writer at least, is probably a better way to say that, was so helpful to create a process where we could all get in a room, think about what it was that was in our heads and get it out. And that was really yeah. what the book was about. It was getting all the shit that was in our heads out on paper. And so honestly, I think it was a really good shot at what category design was as at circa 2015. I really do. And it was based off of our previous lives as operating executives where we'd done this inside the company. It was also 20-odd category designs that we'd done since. So I think we gave it a really good shot, and I think it became very popular because it was different, you know, to a lot of approaches that people had tried. And it was more prescriptive. I think, you know, a lot of people sort of said when it first came out, well, you know, it's a lot like recent trout and it's a lot like Jeffrey Moore and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, yeah, there's some similarities just like any category. It evolves from the previous categories. That's the history of technology. If you think about CRM, it started out with the idea that you could actually save contacts was a remarkable thing. It was on a card file. Then it became contact management as a category on PCs. And then that evolved into Salesforce automation with Brock Systems driving that. That then evolved into CRM, which was what Tom Siebel did, one of the great category designers of all time. And then, of course, Benioff came in and said, no, it's not about on-prem software, which was a term he created yeah. to you know, sort of denigrate the on-prem software and created cloud CRM. And so each one of these categories themselves forms as a result of either technology change or whatever. We've seen that happen with our own discipline called category. It evolved out of you know, standing on the shoulders, as some people say, of some of these greats before it. But it's much more prescriptive. It says, hey, why don't you try doing this, then this, then this, then this, and see if that gets you. And I think we did a good job of getting the initial cut of what the major steps in that method are. Obviously, since then, you know, we've had many successes, a few failures, and you learn every time you do one of these things. It's like design thinking itself. It's an iterative process, and you just keep going round and round on that virtuous cycle. And so... In 2017, I think it was, we created a mobilization kit, a lightning strike mobilization kit. It was one of the things we got a lot of questions about was, okay, so we've done the strategy work. How do you actually get this to market? You know, like you guys have done this a lot before. How do you bring one of these categories to market? And so we released the lightning strike mobilization kit. That was really well received as well. We've had tens of thousands of downloads of that kit already around the world, which is why we know that category design is kind of alive and kicking inside companies. And I think there's more to do. I really do. I think there's quite a lot more. And I think we've now completed almost, no, more than 50 category designs. So 30 more since we wrote the book and some of them, you know, remarkable outcomes. That story is yet to be told. How do VCs use category design? And I can only say that the uptake of category design in Silicon Valley is so clear that for sure it goes far beyond the extra 30 that you've done. <laughs> I would say it's in the hundreds for sure. I think VCs and other investors have been trying for some time to evaluate the potential of a company. And clearly, you know, some of the smartest people in the world, way smarter than us, have been thinking about that. And I think what category design gave people an understanding of and some of our research may have helped was that there was this sort of X factor that's at play, which is that if you become the thought leader, if you become the evangelist for that problem and you become ultimately the category king, the returns are so outsized relative to any other metric that you could identify within a company that you wanted to be part of that. And so 
I think the really savvy investors, VCs in particular, but hey, it's not just VCs anymore. That might have been what happened in 2015, 16, 17 sort of time frame. But now it's, you know, private equity firms, which used to be driven by sort of like pulling cost out of the model, we're now starting to fund growth uh, and starting to underwrite growth, if you want to think of it that way. And then, you know, public investors themselves. So the more, the broader class. And so I think there's a sense that category potential is something that people need to understand. And like TAM, it's hard to get your hands around exactly. But the way we sort of explain it is, that the size and scope of the problem that a company is trying to solve really defines the thing we call category potential. And clearly it'll have a TAM at some point in time and those two things are going to be highly correlated. But some of the really smart investors, savvy investors are looking past TAM to category potential. And I use sort of a company actually we didn't do the category design for, but I think they did a phenomenal job of doing this was a company that just went public here in the United States called Rivian. Christopher and I have done a couple of podcasts on this. I've been writing about it for some time. When I first heard RJ, he's the CEO, RJ Shrinch, he's the CEO of this company talking about his company Rivian. His point of view was that it was just different. It was different than I'd ever heard from anybody, including Elon Musk, who I have the ultimate respect for, but I just think RJ is a way better category designer than Elon. And RJ sort of said, I want to just start with the fact that we as a human race are facing an existential threat and that this thing called climate change is fundamentally changing the nature of our world and that our kids, and this is about the future of our kids, and we have to fundamentally change an industry. Industry by industry, we have to go about changing this. And I'm here to change what we think of as the automotive or the mobility industry. He didn't talk about vehicles. He didn't talk about electric vehicles even. He didn't even talk about, you know, features, but you know, none of that. He was like, I'm going to start there. And so when I first heard that, I was like, that's a giant freaking problem, man. And so you immediately think, well, shit, if he's the evangelist for that problem, like how is he going to solve this thing? You know, like that's a mother load. And so roll the clock forward to the time that he goes public. And if you read his S1, which I've done, a few times, pre and post IPO, they went as far as saying that the TAM for his category called adventure vehicles and electric delivery vehicles was $9 trillion. I sort of stopped at that point. I called one of my friends in investment banking. I said, this is probably a dumb question, but have you ever seen a TAM of more than a trillion dollars in an S1? He was like, "Uh, nope. I said, that's a big number, right? He's like, yep. It's like, how big? And he's like, well, you know, the GDP of Japan, which is the third largest country in the world, is $5 trillion. China is 18 and the US is 24. This is an annual GDP. So saying that you have a $9 trillion TAM, it's quite a statement, <laughs> right? <laughs> then you just look at the category design play that he made. It's a remarkable example of where, and of course, at the time, this is when they just finished their whatever round of financing, pre-IPO <laughs> round of financing, and they were valued, I think it was at 15 or 20 billion. And everyone was saying, not a chance. They haven't even shipped a car, blah, blah, yada, yada. And I was like, I just don't think so, mate. I think you're wrong. I think this guy is going to fundamentally change this industry. And I went on record as saying that. And Chris and I kind of did this podcast, you know, a month or two before the IPO. And we said, look, they're projecting a $60 billion IPO for a company that hasn't even shipped a car. And 
there were people laughing about it. Ultimately, of course, that story played out that actually they went public and they're 100 million and out of the third largest auto manufacturer in the world and they've shipped 150 trucks in total. So again, I'm, I, what I'm saying is that the savvy investors are now starting to understand that there is this thing called category potential. There is this thing which is 76% of the market cap for technology companies at least goes to the leader and we think that in the case of Rivian, it's most likely to be hold for that industry as well, because it's not just about the vehicle, it's about the entire ecosystem. It's about the charging stations. It's about, if you like, the service and dealerships and the entire vertical stack, right? So it's much more of a technology play actually than it is, you know, sort of shipping boxes. Clearly they're shipping a car or a vehicle. So long, long answer to your question of why should VCs be interested in that? If you had have been part of the Rivian story in the early days, you know, you would be a very happy person today. I bought at the IPO and I'm an extremely happy person. And that's the story of category potential, I think, played out in a real world example. I'd actually like to double down on that a bit on the category potential topic. Most of our listeners are emerging VCs, right? So these guys are probably fundraising or thinking of fundraising for the first fund soon. And, you know, granted, okay, category potential, definitely, you know, and you just shared an incredibly interesting story. But um, do you have thoughts on how investors can actually assess for category potential? Yeah, I do. And so you can take the Rivian playbook as a sort of a great example of how you might want to do that. The scope of the problem that the company is going to solve is at the end of the day going to define the category potential. If you just start with that thought, and generally problems relate to an individual, a team, a department, or an enterprise in total, right? So start to think about, well, where are you in the, if, if you like that entire spectrum, either from consumers on one side to how many of those people have this problem? What is the pain what is the value? What is the amount of money you would spend to get rid of that problem is another way to think about it. And then you start building some models based on that. I know that sounds a little bit like TAM and it is a little bit like TAM, but it's a broader concept because, you know, TAM tends to end up about, you know, what's the market for XYZ and how many of those are shipping today? And as a result, what percentage of that are you going to get? It's a rear view mirror as opposed to a forward mirror or a forward view. That would be how I would always start that conversation. A good example, Al, exactly what you just said with Rivian is right now they're doing trucks. <laughs> trucks aren't a $9 trillion market. So that shows very clearly that it's about the problem. It's not about the solution. And no one knows what else they're going to do than trucks. <laughs> and that means that it's not the solution at all that they're working on right now that you need to look for to understand the potential of the category. Just to second that. That's exactly right. And in the second podcast that Christopher and I did, encourage you to lead that. It's on Lock It on Marketing. In that particular case, what we started to look at was, you know, clearly there's how many trucks and SUVs are sold around the world. But in the United States, what we found out was that 80% of the profit of the automotive industry actually goes into the trucks and SUV category. The rest of the profit is shared across all the other categories. So, you know, Elon's the category queen of 20% of the market. <laughs> These guys could be the category king of 80% of the market, okay? So that's another way to think about it. In addition to that, the point I was, Chris and I were exploring was, well, just think about the entire value chain just for a minute. It's not just about, you know, the car, Clearly, that's an important part. But the charging station, you think about charging stations, you imagine what's going to happen. When automobiles came out in the, you know, sort of the early 1900s, did people imagine the service station network that's here today? Of course they didn't. How could they? Well, look at it. I don't know what the total revenue from service stations are around 
the world, but it's going to be a big number, probably in the trillions. So that whole network's going to flip over and you're going to be there for 20 minutes or 15 minutes. So would Starbucks want to be part of that? The third place that you hang out at and have a coffee? Well, of course they would. Uh, Who wouldn't want to be that part of that, right? It's a captured audience. You're stuck with your car. What's that worth? I don't know, but it's a big number, right? And then you think about, you know, dealerships. Dealerships are going away. The idea of a dealership is so arcane. They're going to do upload, you know, electronic uploads to the software and they're going to do the service in your driveway. You're not going to a dealership. So all of a sudden, the value of all of the dealerships gets accretive to the new category. And then you think about the partnership with Amazon was sort of the example that we used in that particular case. The provisioning of these cars, when Amazon buys or activates one of their vehicles, they go in and they select the color of the vehicle. They go in and put into a Rivian system, a configuration system that configures everything in the car. You push a button and that thing pops out the other end. That's like Dow did to computing back in the day. If you remember that revolution, you could buy one off the shelf or you could configure one yourself. What happened? Yeah. Yeah, billions and billions and billions of dollars. So you start to add all of these components together and you realize, oh, holy smokes. Actually, that might be undervalued. As ridiculous as that sounds, that just might be undervalued. And that's what the really savvy investors are now starting to think through is with these fundamental transformations of industries, actually, it's not just about the thing, it's about the entire ecosystem and the value chain. Have you um, seen investors, whether that's angels, VCs, operator investors, doesn't really matter, kind of distilling this into a framework that they use in working uh, with startups and diligencing the startups. Have you seen that being done? And can you share some insights on that front? Yeah, I've seen a couple. When we engage with, in particular, our immersed clients, we generally do an interview of all of the board members and investors. It's part of our just our due diligence of kind of getting up to speed or getting into the heads of the leadership team. And one of the things we always love to see is sort of the investment thesis document. We always ask for it. We often get it. So we have investment thesis documents for maybe 30 or 40 different companies. And we have seen the emergence of sort of trying to quantify category potential starting to show up in these documents in a way that they just didn't in 2016, 17 or anything like that, right? So you're now starting to see the investors themselves having a run at this, separate apart from us, forget us for a minute. (laughs) They're on this idea that they're trying to figure out actually what could this become? What does this category represent? How big is that problem, right? They will do fundamental research into understanding the value of that problem for a particular user or individual or department or a company. And so, yes, we've definitely seen a maturation of that work. Many of these investment theses are written by relatively young people out of, you know, college and sort of just getting the first, you know, five or six years of investing under their belt. And many of those have already heard about category design. They understand that this is something they need to incorporate. In a couple of cases, we've seen some stuff where like, holy smoke, someone's actually talking about that in the (laughs) investment thesis. So yeah, it's definitely a trend that's emerging. Could you name anyone who you know are working with this and also being vocal about it so you can actually learn from them? One of them being Mike Maples, you know, he's definitely got a couple of articles and podcasts out there that talk about this, but are there others? There are a number that we see. Now, our universe is going to be really restricted, right? So we live in a little bit of a bubble here in Silicon Valley. (laughs) Now, really? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So Mike has always been, and Anne Mirico from Floodgate, for that matter, have been early 
if you like, adopters, even in some ways co-conspirators in the early days when we were writing the book, <laughs> for sure. So they definitely get this. And I know he's been, he being Mike, has been very vocal about this topic. Sequoia has been very focused on this area. I'm not sure how much they actually publish externally. I think they're a very private sort of company. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. been our experience. But you know, there's a number of partners at Sequoia, I can tell you that, who yeah. absolutely understand this. And one in particular, you know, Brian Schreier from Sequoia, he was the individual who read the book and then called us and said, okay, we got to get you together with Qualtrics back in early 2016, I think it was. He was such a powerful force in that conversation. You know, at the time, you know, category design isn't what it is now. At the time, it was still an innovative design approach that had some success, but nothing sort of that was so giant that you'd sort of go, what? He helped Ryan and his brother Jared and dad Steve and many others at Qualtrics to understand that this was something important to try. And he even sort of paved the way by helping with some of the economic conversations. That went on to be just one of the, another one of those great examples, like a Rivian example, where Here's a company that's the leader in a market which is round figures, $2 billion at the time. It was called Market Research. They were the high-end version of that. They had all of the bells and whistles, if you like. But there was other strong competitors in there. There was SurveyMonkey, there was Medallia, and a number of other different companies. And Brian kept pushing, I think, us collectively to consider what's the bigger problem here? And of course, as we got into this work, we realized that the bigger problem was is that there were many operational systems that could tell you whether the flight arrived on time at gate number 27, but why Sally, who was sitting in seat 27B, was pissed off was still a freaking mystery. And so this idea that you could start to measure experience or what we ultimately ended up calling X data became a really important thing. And that's something that, you know, Shreya got really excited about himself. That story played out over a remarkable three or four years where, you know, we started with the company, they were plus or minus a billion dollars in market cap. They got acquired for 8 billion by SAP. And I got called the day before that. So they were going public. You probably remember this, but this is back in 2019. Qualtrics had filed their S1. It was a brilliant piece of work. And at the time, they were sort of talking five or six billion. And they said to me, what do you think? I said, that's cheap, man. And I'm always going to be the advocate for the entrepreneur and the category value. So you've got to you know, take a little bit of this with the perspective I have, right? Which is I see the future perhaps more clearly than many people do in that sense, because I've been inside the company. I understand what customers are saying about this and all that. Then they call me the day before and say, actually, SAP just bought us for $8 billion. I said, that's too cheap, man. You just gave yourself away. And I got, you know, people hated me for that. Everyone was stoked. Like, everyone was stoked. Of course they were stoked. You know, it was like a big, big outcome. But I was always thinking, oh, God damn it. And I said at the time when they asked me how much, I said 30. And so the story plays out that, you know, the company can't really operate inside of SAP. The employees are all leaving because the multiples of SAP's revenue is very different to the multiples of Qualtrics. So they have to spin them back out, which they do to their credit. And then it ultimately goes public for $27.1 billion. And that was the point at which people realized, hmm, okay, maybe we did sort of undervalue this thing. Now, they also executed brilliantly between 2019 and 2021. So I'm sure there was something, not I'm sure, there was definitely something with that as well. But the reason for telling that story is just that, is, is that that was a VC in who 
believed that there was much bigger scope to this problem. And many VCs will call us and say, you know what, they've got an insanely great product, but I just think they don't have a perspective on the problem that's big enough. I mean, that's literally the words that come out of these great VCs. I'm talking about the Maples, the Shriers and these guys. That's what comes out of their mouth. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not me saying it, that's them, right? <laughs> and so we just like... Okay, well, if you're saying that, we're going to go and take a look. And if we believe that, then we'll do the work with them, right? And so I think that's the trend that you're starting to see a lot more of. And just recently, we had, you know, one of the preeminent private equity companies come work with us. And they do obviously let a stage, but they have this same concept, which is sometimes companies themselves have got this incredible problem, but they're only servicing a piece of the market. And if they added one or two other pieces together, all of a sudden, this could be a much bigger category, right? And so the idea of combining companies to create or to address a much larger category became something that I think some of the private equity firms are actually thinking about. And so we're engaged in a couple of projects on that. And that's a really exciting thing. None of those have actually come to fruition yet, so I can't really talk about them. But people are thinking about this now. It's not just about what features do you add to the product. It is ultimately what companies can be put together to create and focus on a much bigger problem. I'm actually super curious, Al, because I'd love to have your advice here. If I'm a first-time VC fund manager raising, let's say, you know, a small 15 million fund in name small country in Europe, I probably don't have the luxury of calling Al <laughs> and having that exact conversation that you're describing. What would be your advice for these guys that are outside of the Silicon Valley bubble? They understand what you're saying. They understand. They read the book. They get it but they don't really have experience using it. What I'd say to that is you can always call us. Mary will always take a call. There are a group of category designers inside of Playbigger who specialize in what we call our therapy option, which is a much more approachable and affordable sort of option. And we totally understand that use case and want to help that. So that's part one. Part two is that you can create sort of a category design capability within your firm or portfolio you know, sort of environment where we've seen a couple of these show up too, where VCs actually create essentially their internal category design group. There's a group in New York, I can't really name them, but they have been very successful at doing that. And so they provide that service to their portfolio. But as an individual, you want to get experienced in some of the use cases that I just described, Rivian, Qualtrics, Solona, some of these companies where you can actually see from start to finish, like what the transformation for that organization was. For a pre-series B, so call it, you know, sort of seed series A, it's less clear because they haven't yet got product market fit. They don't truly understand the problem that they're solving. And so in our opinion, you just need to get close enough to what the category could become so that when it goes from being in the early stage of categories, there's that time we were talking about, which is the definition phase, its value is zero by definition, because there's it's a new category, yeah, yeah. but there's many competitors. So it's the opposite to what happens at the other end, right? <laughs> and so lots of people are talking around the same kind of problem, but you've got to be the one to anchor the conversation, as we call it in our book, and really be the evangelist for that problem. And if you do that and you do it well, more often than not, you are going to end up being one of those companies that gets into the developed phase and ultimately has a potential to become the dominant player. And this is exactly why I wanted to bring you on so much, Al, because <laughs> the situation with founders having a great idea, having a great product, but not seeing the scope or the massive opportunity there is something that will always be difficult because it's a bit counterintuitive to what 
everyone or anyone learns. So if you don't spend time in this ecosystem and in this way of thinking, then it doesn't naturally come to you to think of it and frame it as this. So I really think that this is one of the spaces where VCs have an opportunity to bring value at that you can't expect founders just to have. Yeah, no, so true. And in the early days, you know, we used to meet with both VCs and founders who basically said they make shit, they sell shit, and everything else is bullshit. Yeah. You know, there was that mentality, right? And look, I totally respect those people. And I've seen some of the most amazing, like VMware is an example of that. They just made shit, <laughs> you know, they sold shit and everything else was bullshit and they did an insanely great job. So there's an example of a company that did do an incredible job without category design. Someone else defined their category for them. It was actually an analyst at Gartner, I believe. But more often than not, that's not the case. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so if a founder says that to us and truly believes it, we basically respectfully say, look, good luck. We wish you all the best. We can't help you. You're not speaking the same language as us and it's unlikely we're going to be able to help you. There were some founders who were sort of half in that camp and half wondering if there's a different way and what they should do. And in that particular case, we work really hard to try and help them give examples. And the good news is, is that you know, people like Ryan Smith who get up and say there's this thing called the experience gap, you think that you as a CEO think that, you know, 80% of the time you deliver a great experience. The reality is it's eight. <laughs> that gap is so big inside your organization, it's going to kill you. Well, he hasn't even talked about a product. Yeah, yeah. And that's how he drove that whole category. He became the evangelist for the experience gap and he became an evangelist for the requirement to capture X data. Those things came from a founder who had been for 10 years, you know, a pretty strong product guy and sales guy, right? So it can happen and it does happen. And more and more it is happening that founders are realizing, hang on a sec, you know, yes, product's important. Yes, go to market and company's important. But also category is important. And in our book, the first book, we talked about what we call the magic triangle. That's this confluence of product design, company design, and category design. The three of those things came together, have to come together. And the great companies that went on to be these category kings, as we called them, had a great way of combining those three different functions. And so don't do one of them at your peril. If I said to you, hey, you've got a good company design and a great category design, but your product shit, <laughs> you're not going to be happy investing that. Same with got a great product and category, but terrible company, that's not going to work either. And if you've got a great product and company and no category, uh, that's risky too. So, you know, it's this idea that the three of those things really do need to come together. I'll, we always end our episodes with a quick fire round. So those are quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? I am ready. <laughs> ready to rumble. First question, what categories excite you the most that probably other people don't really feel that excited about? I don't know if other people feel excited about them or not, but there are two that really get me fired up at the moment. One of them is sort of this idea that there's new ways of working, I think is a generational shift like we've never seen before. I know that's going to sound like sort of parable or marketing speak, but it's truly true. There's a great article written that the pandemic itself has been the biggest influence on this world since World War II, and I truly believe it. And in this particular article, they went on to say that at the end of World War II, sort of you established the command and control structure inside of companies, the top-down organizations, the idea of a headquarters and an office and all that sort of stuff came essentially from World War II and maybe the previous wars. And that the pandemic has done the opposite. It's blown that up. Now you have distributed teams everywhere. In some cases, everybody at home how do you manage, how do you drive an organization in that situation is just such a remarkable question. 
So that's one. And then the other one that I'm really passionate about is just this whole idea of mobility. What is this world going to look like? Do we even own a car? Or how do you own a car in the future and what kind of a car it is? So they're two that I'm really stoked about right now. Second question of the quick fire round. In your time working with category design, what is the most counterintuitive thing that you've learned? The most counterintuitive thing is you actually want a lot of competitors in your category. Yeah. To expand on that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think what, what most people say is, no, 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 I want to be the only one in that category. It's like, actually, you don't. You want to have a whole bunch of people in that category singing, you know, sort of reinforcing. CRM, when it first came out, you know, is a great example of that. All of a sudden, you want a lot of people in that category. You just want to be the leader. You want to be the thought leader. You want to be the one that's leading, not following. Third and final question, what can we expect in the future from Al Ramadan and Play Bigger? And I almost feel like putting a little comment here. You started off by saying that we're going from define to develop <laughs> for category design as a category. So within that framework, it would be really interesting to hear your thoughts. I think a couple of things you can be sure we're focused on. One is the second book, I think, is underway and it's going to take the next five years of or six <laughs> years of learning that we've had. And we're moving to be more declarative about the design thinking nature of category design and how it actually does drive innovation, how it does drive growth and sort of being a little bit more prescriptive about the kinds of sessions and things like that. So that's one thing for sure that's coming, which we're really, really excited about. And the other thing is, is that we are dedicated to innovating the different kinds of methods that we deliver category design to companies with. And that is absolutely something that you'll see more of from us. You already saw a big step from one to three different methods. I think you're going to start to see tweaks on those methods and different ways of delivering them. Most of our category design done today is by necessity done virtually yep. using Mural. You know, with Mural, we've just found how to create some incredible methods that's actually even more productive than it was mm -hmm. in person. So I think you're going to start to see a lot of innovation on how these methods are actually applied. That's amazing because then we'll also get it to Europe quicker, probably. Uh, so <laughs> that's great. Thank you so much for joining us, Al. Uh, we really enjoyed having you here at the European VC. And I think it sounds like we should do a masterclass someday to really dive deep on this. Sounds great, guys. And have a fabulous holiday. We hope you enjoy and your families enjoy the time ahead. And uh, we look forward to the new year. Thank you, million. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.